Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the book of the prophet Jeremiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Because the God of the Bible does not change, doesn't change in his nature or his character or his holiness or his righteous judgment, because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, as a consequence, some of these Old Testament books, like what we're going to read in Jeremiah tonight, still resonate with us and are still very relevant to us in this day. Tonight we're going to start with some Old Testament history in order to understand the next section of what God says to Jeremiah. To Jeremiah, it was very recent history, but to us, we need to be reminded of what God is talking about. So we're going to start tonight in 2 Kings. Turn to 2 Kings chapter 20. We'll do a little bit of history, then we'll look at Jeremiah, and then we're going to see a very relevant <clears throat> statement from God that I think needs to be reminded to the church in the current world over and over again. We're going to start in 2 Kings 20, starting at verse 12, read a little bit about Hezekiah, and then his son Manasseh is going to become king. Manasseh is just a terrible king. And this is what God is going to make reference to in the next section of Jeremiah. So at that time, Baradak Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that Hezekiah had been sick. And Hezekiah listened to them and showed them all his treasure house. Apparently, he was happy to show off that he was a king of power and that he had great wealth. And he showed them all his treasure house, the silver and the gold and the spices and the precious oil and the house of his armor and all that was found in his treasuries. There was nothing in his house nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say, and from where have they come to you? And Hezekiah said, They've come from a far country, from Babylon. And he said, And what have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing among my treasures that I have not shown them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your sons who shall issue from you, whom you shall beget, shall be taken away, and they shall become officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. 
Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. For he thought, is it not so if there shall be peace and truth in my days? Now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and all his might and how he made a pool and a conduit and brought water to the city, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Hezekiah slept with his fathers and Manasseh, his son, became king in his place. So Hezekiah receives from Isaiah the prediction that Jerusalem is going to be taken into Babylon and that his sons, his kings, are going to end up serving in Babylon, all of which actually happened, and that the wealth of Jerusalem is going to go to Babylon. That all happened. Right behind that, starting in chapter 21, Manasseh becomes king. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Hephzibah. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed, and he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah, as Ahab the king of Israel had done. And he worshipped all the host of heaven, and he served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. For he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he made his sons pass through the fire. He practiced witchcraft, and he used divination. And he dealt with mediums and spiritists. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And then he set the carved image of Asherah that he had made in the house of which the Lord said to David and to his son Solomon, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not make the feet of Israel wander any more from the land which I gave their fathers, if only they will observe to do according to all that I have commanded them, and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they did not listen. And Manasseh seduced them to do evil more than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. Now the Lord spoke through his servants, the prophets, saying, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations, having done wickedly more than all the Amorites did who were before him, and has also made Judah sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing such calamity on Jerusalem and Judah that whoever hears of it, both his ears will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab, And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will abandon the remnant of my inheritance and deliver them into the hand of their enemies. And they shall become as plunder and spoil to all their enemies because they have done evil in my sight and have been provoking me to anger since the day their fathers came from Egypt, even to this day. 
Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood until he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another. Besides his sin with which he made Judah sin in doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and all that he did and all the sin that he has committed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? And Manasseh slept with his fathers and was buried in the garden of his own house in the garden of Uzzah. And Ammon, his son, became king in his place. So now turn to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 15 is what we're going to be looking at tonight. Jeremiah 15, 4, look at that verse. God here is explaining his motivation for why he is going to bring destruction on Judah and Jerusalem. Jeremiah 15, 4 says, And I shall make them an object of horror among all the kingdoms of the earth because of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, for what he did in Jerusalem. So, Hezekiah was such a bad king and did so many evil things. And then Manasseh comes along. Manasseh was such an evil king, ruled for his 55 years, returned Judah to idol worship, had his own children passing through the fire, the very thing that God said, don't do. And so God, who remembers this and who is willing to judge righteously, Even though Josiah came along later, and Josiah brought some reforms to Judah again, and Josiah did try to restore the Passover and the law to Jerusalem. And so as a consequence, he was told by God that he was going to get to die before God brought all this punishment on Judah, because he had been tender toward God, so God wasn't going to allow him to see all of this, but it didn't dissuade God. He was still so angry about what happened during the time of Manasseh that God still was going to bring this about. So at the end of chapter 14 last week, we read a plea from the people of Judah that looked very much like repentance. It looked like they finally were learning their lesson and were willing to both plead to God and to change their ways. And you would think, as I stressed last week, you would think that after a prayer like this, that God would relent, that God would say, okay, you're repentant, you've changed your ways. Okay, I'm now going to be kind and merciful and long-suffering towards you. But God does not relent in the least. And last week we read into a little bit of chapter 15 because chapter 14 and 15 are a continuation of the exact same vision and response. So I'm going to start reading in Jeremiah 14 starting at verse 19 so that we can get the context of the beginning of chapter 15. Hast thou completely rejected Judah, the people are asking God, or hast thou hated, loathed Zion? Why hast thou stricken us so that we are beyond healing? We waited for peace, but nothing good came. We waited for a time of healing, but behold, terror. We know our wickedness, O Lord, the iniquity of our fathers, for we have sinned against thee. Do not despise us for thine own name's sake. 
Do not disgrace the throne of thy glory. Remember and do not annul thy covenant with us. Are there any among the idols of the nations who can give rain? And can the heavens grant showers? Is it not thou, O Lord, our God? Therefore, we hope in thee, for thou art the one who has done all these things. Boy, that sounds like a good repentant prayer, doesn't it? And in our modern Christian context, that's exactly the kind of prayer that we expect to see God turn positively toward and for God to be merciful to people who would be willing to admit their own sinfulness and admit that he's God and that they admit that their own fathers have sinned against God, but now they've repented and turned back to him and said, what other God can do the things that you can do? Remember, this is within the context of the great drought that God is bringing that we talked about last week. And they're praying for rain, and they say, the idols can't bring rain. You have to do it, God. And so you would expect God to be kind-hearted in response. Chapter 15, verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, because these people were just attempting to intercede on behalf of Israel and encourage God to be kind and long-suffering with them, the Lord said to me, even if Moses and Samuel were to stand in front of me, Moses and Samuel both have records in the Old Testament of interceding between Israel and God. There were a couple times that God said to Moses, I'm just going to wipe them all out and start again with you. And Moses said, don't let that be your reputation. Don't let the nations know that you're a God who would do that. He was constantly interceding for the failures of Israel. And here God says, even if Moses and Samuel were standing here interceding for you, even though they were standing before me, my heart would not be with this people. Send them away from my presence and let them go. And it shall be that when they say to you, where should we go? Then you tell them this. Thus says Yahweh. Here's a remarkably sovereign statement from God. And when we think about the sovereignty of God, so often we think of the sovereignty of God within the narrow context of salvation, of grace of God being able to save whoever he wants because he's sovereign. But here is God saying, I'm going to destroy in very specific ways, and all of these people are going to go to the exact fate that they are assigned to that I have sovereignly determined for them. You tell them to get out of my sight, get out of my land. After all, Jerusalem is the place where my temple is or where my name is, you tell them to go away from me. And when they say, where, where are we going to go? God's answer is chilling. Those who are destined for death go to death. And those who are destined for the sword to the sword. And those destined for famine to famine. And those destined for captivity to captivity. So when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian armies come steaming into Jerusalem, start dropping the walls of Jerusalem and then start attacking the temple and people are being killed, there's massive bloodshed. God in advance says in his sovereign judgment, 
that the ones that are meant to be killed are going to be killed. The ones who are destined for the sword are going to be killed by the sword. Now, throughout the law, we've seen these three particular categories that God has spoken of repeatedly, that there's going to be famine, there's going to be pestilence, and there's going to be sword. All three of those seem to be represented here. Those who are destined to death, that appears to be the death by pestilence, by sickness, that they're going to die from an internal sickness. Those people who are destined for that death are going to go to that death. And then a completely different group of people who are destined to be killed by the sword are going to go to the sword. And those who are destined for famine are going to die of famine. And then notice those who are destined to captivity are going to go to captivity because God always keeps himself a remnant. He never completely wipes out Jerusalem Earlier in the book of Jeremiah, we saw God promise that to Jeremiah, that though he was going to pour out his wrath on the children of Jerusalem, he said, I'm not going to make a complete end of them. So there's going to be this remnant or this group of people who are going to end up in Babylon alive, like Daniel, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who are all going to end up in Babylon for the 70 years and then eventually come back and rebuild Jerusalem, and rebuild the temple. And God is going to start again with this new remnant. But God, in his absolute sovereignty, determines not only who's going to die, but how they're going to die. And those are ugly deaths. Starve to death, pestilence to death, sickness to death, or run through with the sword. I'd have to go with the sword between those three. And then those who are going into captivity are destined to captivity. And then I will appoint over them four kinds or four types. The NASB translators added the words of doom. I don't think Jeremiah necessarily meant four kinds of doom. But here's what the four kinds are, the way that their bodies are going to be dealt with. They're either going to have the sword to slay them. That's the end of their bodies. The dogs to drag them off. So they're going to be eaten by dogs. And the birds of the sky and the beasts of the earth to devour and destroy. So the bodies are either going to be hacked up by swords, eaten by dogs, eaten up by birds or the beasts of the field. Those are the four that God has appointed For these, the children of Israel, the children of Jerusalem, that he is going to destine to death, to the sword, to famine, and to captivity. It's a really, really bleak prediction. And by the way, did that happen? History says yes. It was one of the bloodiest conquests of a city in human history. So then verse 4 says, And I shall make them an object of horror. God knows it's bad. God knows he has determined real ugly deaths for these people. And he's going to make them an object of horror among all the kingdoms of the earth. For what reason? Because of what we just read. Because of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, for what he did in Jerusalem. So God has a very long memory because Hezekiah 
with several kings before Babylon actually made its way into Jerusalem. And yet God, remembering what Hezekiah did and remembering how willingly the people followed Hezekiah, how quickly they turned on him and went and chased their foreign gods and went and did the very things that God in his law said don't do. Don't worship other gods. Don't do it in the groves. Don't do it on the high hills. Don't make altars to other gods. Hezekiah made altars to foreign gods and then brought them into the temple in Jerusalem, defiling the temple in Jerusalem and equating these other non-gods with Yahweh, the only God who is. Can you see why God would be angry? And so he's letting his anger and wrath be known But interestingly, he held off. He waited through Josiah's kingdom. He waited and then took the next couple of kings in succession and made them vassals of Egypt and then of Babylon and then ultimately deported them into Babylon where they became servants of Babylon exactly like he told Hezekiah was going to happen. Indeed, says verse 5, Who will have pity on you, O Jerusalem? Or who will mourn for you? Or who will turn aside and ask about your welfare? You have forsaken me, declares the Lord. You keep going backward. So I will stretch out my hand against you and destroy you. I'm tired of waiting. Tired of relenting. God says, I'm long-suffering, and I keep putting up with you. And every time you deserve punishment, I relent. And now God says, enough with the relenting. I'm going to actually now do the very thing I've been talking about for nearly 100 years. The result of that, verse 7, is... I'm going to winnow them with a winnowing fork. We don't have a real good idea of what a winnowing fork is uh, when you used to separate the wheat from the chaff. A winnowing fork was used to throw the grain and the chaff up in the air when you were on the threshing floor. And so God is saying, I'm going to separate you, except this kind of separation is going to be this one to death, this one to famine, this one to sickness, This one going into captivity. God is going to make distinctions and separate them the same way that a farmer would go out and separate the wheat from the chaff. I will winnow them with a winnowing fork at the gates of the land. And I will bereave them of children and I will destroy my people. Notice again that God calls them my people. These are the people I chose. These are the people who I revealed myself to. These are the people I gave my law. These are the people who had all the advantages that no other nation of people on the planet had. These are the people who certainly should have turned to me. And what we see in this is that short of God actually inhabiting people with his Holy Spirit and changing them from within, even human beings who have every advantage, even the people who have a revelation of who God is and what he's like and what he expects, even people who hear prophets, even people who see miracles like passing through the Red Sea, even people who have the history of God and have God in their midst 
and three times a year come to feast to celebrate God. Even those people, if they don't have the inward change, cannot truly follow God after their own hearts. They will turn away. They will chase other gods. They will chase after their own flesh and their own desires. That's just universally all people because, well, total corruption, total depravity. It's just true. I will bereave them of children. I will destroy my people because they did not repent of their ways. So now this leads us to an interesting theological conundrum. After everything I just said and everything that you all agreed to, I'm guessing you agreed to it by the way you were nodding at me, about total depravity and about human beings not being able to follow God short of God changing them from within, short of God doing something miraculous and drawing sinful people to himself, I have to ask the question, well then, they didn't repent, but... Could they? And the answer is no. And yet, did God hold them responsible for it? Yeah. yeah. When God gave them the law, he told Moses, they're not going to do it. And when they don't, I'm going to pour out all of these punishments and judgments on them. But they're not going to do it. So did God know they weren't going to do it? Yes. Yeah. Did God know they couldn't keep the law? Sure. Is God judging them despite their incapability for not keeping his law? Yeah. Well, that's the kind of God you're dealing with. You're dealing with a God who is so righteous, holy, and just that he can make requirements and hand them to you knowing full well that you can't do them and then judge you for not doing what he knows you can't do. So then you're utterly dependent on him. He's either going to judge you or he's going to have to be the one that saves you. And if you know that he's the one that has to save you, what would you do? You would turn to him. You would cry to him. You would pray to him. You would worship him. You would bring him his sacrifices. You would stay true to him because he's the only hope you have. So you can see why under those circumstances, God would be angry that his people who have all this revelation of him and what he's like would turn to other gods, would turn to stone and wood, would chase after gods that burn their children, thinking that they could somehow appease those gods, and then maybe those gods collectively could keep them safe from Yahweh, the real God. I mean, it's insanity. It's still happening to this day, but it's insanity because people who are depraved are insane. People who don't have the spirit of God inside them are insane. People who don't have a regenerated spirit and a regenerated mind are insane. And they will chase after every earthly, fleshly insanity they can find to try to avoid the reality that this is what God is like. Nobody has any excuses. Nobody can say anything at all in front of this God. He is the one who can say Do this. These are my rules. This is my law. If you don't do it, I'll hold you guilty for it, and I'll judge you for it. And so you're forced to run to him. You're forced to get down on your face in front of him and not just worship him because of his beauty or splendor or majesty, but to worship him in fear. 
to worship him for who he is, to reverence him for who he is, and recognize his utter and complete sovereignty and your complete incapability. So God says, verse 8, their widows will be more numerous before me than the sands of the seas. And I will bring against them and against the mother of a young man, a destroyer in the middle of the day at noonday. And I will suddenly bring down on her anguish and dismay. She who bore seven sons pines away. In other words, her sons are no help to her. They can't defend her. They can't help her. Her breathing is labored. Her sun has set while it was yet midday. She has been ashamed and humiliated. So I shall give over their survivors to the sword before their enemies, declares the Lord. Verse 10, woe to me, my mother, that you have borne me. This seems to be Jeremiah's reply now, hearing God say all this, having heard Judah come to God in repentance, coming and saying these things that apparently they didn't mean completely from their hearts, but at least they were begging God and seemed to be repentant and admitting their sin and admitting that he was the only God who was going to be any help to them. He was the only God that could bring any rain. And then seeing the way that God turns on them and maintains his judgment and maintains his steadfast determination to judge Jerusalem for all the evil that they have done and that Manasseh has done and their entire history. And so their momentary repentance right there and right then is not enough to change God's mind or to turn him. And Jeremiah has seen this, and he starts thinking, whoa, I should not have been born because now we're dealing with this God. Woe to me, my mother, that you have borne me as a man of strife and as a man of contention to the whole land. I have neither lent nor have men lent money to me. Both of those would be situations where trouble could stir up. If you lend money to somebody and you don't get it back, causes trouble. you borrow money, then people have power over you because you're holding their money. He said, I haven't done any of that. I haven't done anything wrong to any man. All I've done is told them what God said to tell them. Because God has told them the truth, I went and told them what God has said. And that has made me a man of contention to everybody in the land. I'd rather just not be born. And yet, though I've done no wrong to anybody, yet everyone curses me. In verse 11. You would think after Jeremiah rightly saying, this is hard, God. This is tough. Everybody's against me. I'm just out here trying to do the right thing. Again, you would think that God would be sympathetic and say, oh, well, I know it's tough, but I'll I'll give you a break. Instead, God says, stop whining. Instead, God says, these are empty words. These are pointless words. Here's how he puts it. The Lord said, surely I will set you free for purposes of good. Surely I will cause the enemy 
to make supplication to you. That's going to happen, by the way. Later in the book of Jeremiah, the kings are going to start begging Jeremiah to get God to relent. Surely I will cause the enemy to make supplication to you in a time of disaster, in a time of distress. And then God describes how bad it's going to be by saying, can anyone smash iron? Can you, with your bare hands, smash some iron? Well, no. Can anyone smash iron, iron from the north or bronze? Your wealth and your treasures I will give for booty without cost. The very same thing that he said to Hezekiah after Hezekiah showed him all his treasures. God said, I'm going to give that all now to your enemies. So here he is repeating that. I'm going to give everything you've got, all the booty. I'm going to give it to your enemies without cost because of all your sins and within all your borders. And then I will cause your enemies to bring it into a land that you do not know. There's that promise that they're going to be taken into Babylon and all their wealth is going to be taken into Babylon for a fire has kindled in my anger and it will burn upon you. Jeremiah answers again because God keeps ramping it up. Thou who knowest, O Lord, a great description of God, the God who is present, the God who knows, the God who sees everything. Thou who knowest, O Lord, remember me. Take notice of me and take vengeance for me on my persecutors. Do not, in view of thy patience, take me away. Know that for thy sake I endure reproach. Thy words were found, and I consumed them. I ate them. And thy words became for me a joy and a delight of my heart. For I have been called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts. And I did not sit in the circle of merrymakers, nor did I exult, did I party in the streets. Because of thy hand upon me, I sat alone. And thou didst fill me with pain, with indignation, with hatred from all my fellow men. Why has my pain been perpetual and my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? Wilt thou indeed be to me like a deceptive stream with water that is unreliable? You know, if you're in the desert and you find a stream, oh, great, I've got water. It's going to sustain me. Then if you wake up the next day and it's just a dry riverbed and you've got no water anymore, that's a deceptive stream. And he says, here you are, God. You've told me your word. I ate your word. I consumed it. It was sweet to me. I understood that it was your word. And I go out and I tell people, and people hate me. And my pain has been constant, perpetual. My wound is incurable. It will not be healed. And are you to me like a deception? Are you to me someone who has made me promises and then you're going to leave me high and dry? And God says, verse 19, therefore thus says the Lord, basically stop it. Just quit it. Quit whining. If you return, then I will restore you, and before me you will stand. 
And if you extract the precious from the worthless, you will become my spokesman. That means think about the precious words. Think about the words I've told you. Think about the stuff I've told you that you said was sweet to you, that you were happy to receive. Think about that stuff and then get rid of the worthless stuff. Get rid of the worthless words. Get rid of all this whining and complaining. I'm your shield. I'm your protection. I'm your reward. I'm everything to you. If you have me, then what do you care what other people think of you? So then get rid of the worthless and extract from the worthless the things that are really, truly precious. That's what he means by return to me. Your heart is going away from me, just like all the other people. You're saying I'm a dried up stream. And he's saying, remember who I am. Remember what I'm like. Clear up your mind. Renew your mind. Think again and return to me, and I'll restore you. And before me, you will stand if you extract the precious from the worthless, and you will become my spokesman. And they, for their part, may turn to you. But as for you, you must not turn to them. And that's what he was doing. He was starting to listen to his enemies. He was starting to listen to all the people who hated him. He was getting tired of the berating. He was getting tired of being an enemy to everybody. And he was saying, the world is against me. I'm all by myself. I sit by myself. I didn't go to parties in the streets. I didn't go sit with the, with the merrymakers. I have a sad life. I have a lonely life. And God says to him, think about what you do have. You have me. And if you have me, don't turn again and be like them. Get them to turn and be like you. This is what I was referring to earlier as the moment of relevance that I think is so important to the church world to this very day. I don't know if you saw the video that's going around just this week of the church that was having a blessing service for transsexual, LGBTQ, and, and drag queens. So they're having a blessing service talking about how God loves everybody and how they were affirming the humanity of these drag queens. So why did they do that? Why are they doing that? Because they want the world, since this is right now the current trendy thing in the world, since right now the world will turn on you and hate you if you don't affirm uh, every completely depraved thing that comes down the pike, if you're going to stand for the Bible and say, no, that's actually sin, and God actually speaks to this sin, and God is going to judge this sin, well, then the world is going to hate you. And so there are large swaths of the modern so-called church that are becoming the world, acting like the world, affirming the things of the world. And if the world wants to say gay marriage, well, then the church right behind that started doing gay marriages. Even though the Bible says that homosexuality is depravity before God, an abomination before God, some so-called churches started putting gay men and even gay women into the ministry, standing in the pulpits, preaching messages that can't be found anywhere in the Bible 
about God's universal love and acceptance of all people. I've seen some just insane videos lately, as I'm sure you all have, now that we have access to pretty much everybody's services. There's stuff going on where, again, the so-called church is acting like the world to try to get the world's approval. And here is God who does not change, saying, for their part, they should turn to you, but you don't turn to them. And the modern church in the West is turning to the world rather than expecting the world to turn to the church. There was a time in America when Christianity and the church held sway, held political power, which is why there's so many references to God among the writings of our founding fathers. The expectation was that American democracy could only be sustained if there was a Christian conscience within the society. It's no wonder that our American Republic is falling apart at the seams because it has also extricated Christian principles from the society. We're seeing right now the very living example of the opposite of what God has said here. He has said to Jeremiah, you stand on what I've told you. You stay with me. They, for their part, they're going to turn to you. You stand for the truth. They're going to come back to me. And that did happen. They did come back to Jerusalem, and they did rebuild the temple. And for a little while, they did return to God. And during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, they rediscovered the law. And Ezra had a platform built and stood in front of them while they stood up in the hot sun all day. And he read out the entire law to them and reestablished the covenant with God yet again. God, knowing what was going to happen, said to Jeremiah, you stand firm, they'll come to you. Don't you go to them. Don't you become like them, which is what Jeremiah was starting to do when he was saying, I hurt God and my sore is incurable. And have you become some kind of deception to me? Are you a deceptive stream of water that's unreliable? And God stops him in his tracks and says, that's worthless. That's pointless. Don't talk like that. That's God's version of just shut up, sit down. Don't you remember who I am? Don't you remember what I'm like? You stick with me, and I will restore you, and I will protect you, and I will defend you. But you have to stay with me, and do not be swayed by them. And that message, don't be swayed by them, I wish I could scream at all the churches in the world. And just say, stop it. You're not paying attention to the word of God because the word of God says, don't do the very thing you're doing. Who cares what the world thinks? You're supposed to be opposed to this world. And so much of the so-called church world is trying to appease the world by being like the world. The entertainment in churches these days is like the world. I saw a video the other day of a church that was having a Taylor Swift ceremony where they were going to be preaching from the lyrics of Taylor Swift. What? I've seen church videos of people playing ACDC songs during their service. Highway to hell. I mean, what's wrong with that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> 
Yeah, well, then there you go. I, just insanity running rampant in the church these days. So, if you return, I will restore you. That's a promise from God. These churches need to return to God and his word and what he said. God will restore them. Before me, you will stand if you extract the precious from the worthless. There's so much going on in the church today that is worthless. And we need to extract the precious and hold on to that. You will become my spokesman. They, for their part, may turn to you. But as for you, you must not turn to them. And then I will make you to this people a fortified wall of bronze. A minute ago, he said, can anybody withstand iron and bronze? Can anybody with their own hands fight against iron and bronze? Here God is promising, I'll make you like a fortified wall of bronze. They're not going to be able to deny you, and they're not going to be able to hurt you. They're not going to be able to do anything against you. I will make you to this people a fortified wall of bronze, and though they fight against you, they will not prevail over you. See, I wish the church world believed that, that if we just stood for God, that God would defend us against this world and against the attacks from this world. Stand for God and his word, and he'll stand for you. But these weak, mealy-mouthed, compromising, I need to edit myself. I'll make you a fortified wall of bronze. And though they fight against you, they will not prevail over you. Why? For I am with you to save you and deliver you, declares the Lord. So what did God just say? Jeremiah said, it's hard. My enemies avenge me. It's difficult. My wound. I'm tired. Here God is saying, I'm enough for you. I'll protect you. I'll take care of you. Just don't turn away from me. Just turn to me. Return and I will restore you. Verse 21, so I will deliver you from the hand of the wicked and I will redeem you from the grasp of the violent. Okay, so God said nobody is able to withstand the wall of iron and bronze that was coming. That was a reference to the armies of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians that were coming to Jerusalem and nobody was going to be able to withstand it. But then God said, stay with me, stay with my word, do what I've told you, return to me, I will restore you, and then I'm going to save you and I'm going to deliver you. Nobody's going to be able to fight against you. You'll be like a fortified wall of bronze, and then I'll deliver you from the hand of the wicked. I'm going to redeem you from the grasp of the violent. I wish the church world believed that. That if you just stand for God and stand for what is right, call sin, sin, don't be afraid to say in this insane world that the things that the world is 
validating and verifying and voting for, that these things are just absolutely unbiblically sinful and depraved and that God is going to judge them. And if we stand for that and if we're willing to say that out loud, sure, we might get canceled by the cancel culture of the world, but I'd rather the world hate me and God redeem me than to have it be the opposite way. Amen. I'd rather be on his side than the side of the world and that is the directive that God gave Jeremiah when Jeremiah felt the pain of what it is to stand against the world. So, a tad relevant? Very much so. Even though it's all the way back to Jeremiah. God doesn't change. That's where we began an hour ago. God doesn't change. Same God being the same way. Remember, that's the God you've got to deal with and get on your face in front of him because he's your judge. He's your savior. And you got no place else to go. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.